0: You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willy. Hey, what's up everyone? Welcome back to Music Legends. I'm your host, Chili Willy, aka just another recipient of those pesky spam calls. Whew, boy, we have been on a journey. It's episode six, and Miles Davis has already made a dent in the history books of jazz, and he was just getting started. Miles is just about to take yet another left turn in his career, but as far as his personal life goes, well, he's still only headed downward. In today's episode, we explore the new psychedelic state of mind that Miles Davis had in the 1960s and early 70s, how the infamous 1969 Woodstock Festival influenced him, the creation of the beloved Bitches Brew, and much more, so stay tuned. Everything around Miles was changing all at once. His new life with Betty Mabry, now Betty Davis, was full of passion, spontaneity, and change. He was on a diet, a diet of, well, hardly anything except vegetables and protein. He even cut his typical daily dose of alcohol and cocaine completely out of his diet. It was the summer of love after all, and the environment around him was changing. He exchanged his daily dose of hate, alcohol, and cocaine for a daily dose of love. As Miles started to identify more with the rock and roll musicians, he didn't just want to talk the talk. He was ready to walk the walk and even dress the dress. Miles had this deep need for change. It was like a curse, but change suited him well. Well, (laughs) it suited him funky. See, he went from dapper suits straight to bell-bottom pants covered in colorful shapes and patterns. Gold chains and necklaces made out of odd-shaped beads and trinkets. There was almost a mythical and wild nature to his new look. I guess you could say he had to become the funk to truly understand the funk. And just like that, the days of his smooth, sleepy sounds were gone, and a new era had risen. An era of channeling sly stone combined with Jimi Hendrix through trumpet lines that could make you feel like you just took shots of pure distilled passion. Miles was on the hunt for a new sound once again, but he was gonna need some new instruments to achieve it. He told his bass player that he was gonna need someone that played electric bass, not upright. This got the bass player a bit heated and he was out. It wasn't long before the rest of the band fell apart too. A new band though was just what Miles needed anyway. He found the perfect crew It started on his next record, In A Silent Way. The album contains just two sidelong tracks that were pieced together from different takes recorded at that session. When the album was released in July 1969, some critics were accusing him of selling out to the rock and roll audience. Nevertheless, it was a hit among the fans, and would be the start of yet another new genre. The summer of love wasn't over yet. For Miles, it was just getting started. One of his favorite new artists was, of course, Jimi Hendrix. And Miles was even planning on getting Jimi in the studio so they could work on some music together. Miles and Jimi were both busy men. And at that very moment, they both happened to be in New York. Except Miles was in New York City, still asleep. And Jimi, well, he was in upstate New York. Bethel, to be exact in the middle of a giant, muddy field on a dairy farm, full of, not sheep, or goats, or cattle, but full of sleep-deprived hippies. It was about 10 a.m., and that was pretty damn early for the 500 or so hippies still in that field. Some were wide awake, some were (laughs) out cold, some some thought they were in a different galaxy altogether, regardless of the state of mind anyone was in. When they heard a familiar, yet... A totally unique melody, their eyes and their ears honed in on the stage. Hendrix was drenched in a humid sweat as his guitar squealed. And then he began his screaming and powerful version of the Star-Spangled Banner, turning the national anthem on its head with gut-wrenching feedback. It's hard to believe a kid with so much energy would be dead in just 13 months. But we'll get more into that on another episode. Miles and Jimmy, Unfortunately, never did get the chance to make any music together. His energy, nonetheless, was powerful. There were certain echoes and fumes of Jimmy's energy flowing in the ether as Miles and his musicians stepped into the CBS studio in New York City the very next day. Hendrix at Woodstock on Monday, the creation of Bitches Brew on Tuesday. That's the summer of love for you. ¶¶ Inside the studio, it was all-out mayhem, controlled mayhem. Two percussionists, one banging on bongos, the other with a full drum kit. Meanwhile, two keyboards, two guitars, two basses plucking and pecking different tones of deep, dirty psychedelia all at the same time. Miles had employed all the same techniques that he'd mastered on Kind of Blue. Although, unlike Kind of Blue, there was no more holding back no more tentative experimentation. This time, he was on the path of exploration. Miles said the following about the recording process. Quote, I would direct like a conductor. Once we started to play, I would either write down some music for somebody or I would tell them to play different things I was hearing as the music would develop. I would hear something I thought could be extended or cut back. So that recording was a development of the creative process a living composition, we would find a certain motif and all bounce off it in our own way. After it had developed to a certain point, I would tell a certain musician to come and play something else. I wish I thought of videotaping that whole session. That was a great recording session, man." Unquote. He threw out the sophistication that jazz was becoming known for and traded it for the raw rebellion of rock and roll. Bitch's Brew was groundbreaking on so many levels, beginning with its stark mysterious title and wild expressionistic cover painting. Seriously, if you don't know what the cover looks like, go Google it. It's insane. So word was traveling fast around Capitol Records that Miles was recording an album that sounded more like rock and roll than jazz. Intrigued and filled with the prospect of money and lots of it, the president of Columbia called up Miles. Miles, Miles, it's Clive. I hear you're making a rock album. Sounds like you're glad you did the shows. He said as he propped his feet up on his mahogany desk at Columbia Records headquarters. Now, you might be asking yourself, what shows? Well, about a year before that call, Clive had a pretty intense meeting with Miles. Here's Clive talking about that meeting. Miles asked to see me, and it was a very, very tense meeting. And he said, these fucking long-haired white kids were stealing uh, his music, his
1: riffs. He was irate and has to be released from the label. I said, look, I can get you dates playing with musical artists of a different generation,
0: playing a different kind of music. I just know that
1: if you play those dates, Something will happen.
0: So Miles ended up doing those rock shows and they definitely paid off. But Miles wasn't too happy with Clive. He helped popularize jazz and because of that, he also helped destroy it. Now, flash forward to about a year later, when Clive called up Miles to discuss rumors he heard about him making a new rock album. Now, Miles still had that grudge against Clive, and he wasn't about to just let it go. And he definitely wasn't about to play nice on the phone. So, Miles, what can you tell me about this new rock album you've been cooking up? Miles was quiet. The fiery rage fizzled up to the brink, like a can of Coke that's been violently shaken up just waiting on its unassuming victim to be opened. But right when that rage reached his throat, he took a deep breath, something he learned from his wife Betty Davis. In the moment, it helped, but it still couldn't contain all of it, and some of that rage still slipped through his teeth when he answered. It ain't no rock album class. Hey Miles, what exactly have you been brewing up? Because I know you've been working on something. Miles now clenched his teeth in a last resort effort to keep the rage from spilling out of his mouth. But eventually, someone was bound to open that cursed can of Coke. Miles, uh, you still there, buddy? I'll tell you what I've been brewing up, Clive. It's a bitch's brew, snarled Miles. Wow, a bitch's brew. That's interesting. I sure hope that's not the title, Miles. You know, you can't say that on the radio. (laughs) Forget about the title. Wait till you hear the music. Just like that, Miles hung up on Clive. A few days later, Clive was sitting in his office with his feet propped up on his desk. One of his favorite hobbies. When there was a knock at his door. Clive didn't respond. didn't exactly have time to. You see, this was the kind of knock that a doctor gives when they finally come in after you stripped, put on that funny robe, and waited around for 15 minutes. In other words, it wasn't a knock and wait for a come on in, it was more of a knock and immediately open the door. But that's just how Clive Davis, the president of Columbia Records trained his assistants to be. Sir, you have delivery from Miles Davis, said his assistant, and it was gigantic. It barely fit through the door to his office. So Clive got up off his comfortable perch and him and his assistant started unwrapping the package. The anticipation was building, the sweat was flowing. It was starting to feel a lot like Christmas. Clear beads of sweat rolled down Clive's forehead as they tore the final layer of packaging. Vibrant colored canvas was beginning to be exposed. It was a painting and it was beautiful. It captured the zeitgeist of free love and flower power in all its glory, depicting a naked black couple looking expectantly at the ocean with a huge, vibrant red flower beside them. The painting seemingly came with no note, no explanation. Clive and his assistant stood in his office, awestruck by its beauty. Clive knew, somewhere deep down, that this was the cover art for that bitch's brew Miles was talking about. Later that year, the album was released, and it had sold faster than any other album Miles had made. He'd effectively created something completely different than what he'd ever done, or any other musician was going to do at that time. And somehow, he did it all while giving the middle finger to the establishment of his label, and the newly gentrified genre of jazz. The name, the cover, the music, they all fueled his mysterious public image. Fans automatically began theorizing about the title's true meaning. And it's no surprise, as the title itself provides a depth of curiosity. For example, take the absence of the apostrophe at the end of the word bitches, making brew a verb, not a noun. Carlos Santana speculated that the album was a tribute to the cosmic ladies, like Miles' current wife, Betty Davis, who at the time introduced him to some of the music, clothes, and attitudes of the 60s counterculture. On the other hand, some people assumed bitches referred to the musicians themselves. Just in a good way. Whatever the title meant, it sounded provocative. Tio Macero, who helped produce Bitches' group, said the following, quote, probably that was the first time a title like that was ever used. The title fit the music, and the cover fit the music, unquote. Bitches Brew put Miles right in the pocket of a new generation of music. Yet, Bitch's Brew wasn't made to get popular. It was an act of resistance. Even the songs don't follow any kind of structure at all. Each song jumps around and bounces from melody to melody. It really creates a completely unique listening experience with peaks and valleys. Heck, the title track is almost 27 minutes long. Moves like that, well, those are the kind that end up disturbing the very fabric of music. As crazy as it sounds. Disrupting the very fabric of music was becoming a habit for Miles. Every 10 years or so, once jazz would get stale, he went in and turned it on its head, it made it dangerous again. Miles was playing nonstop shows to sold out arenas and festivals. Him and his band were backstage. The roar of the crowd made his heart beat fast. They were on next. 600,000 people were just 50 feet away. His band was just as cool, calm, and collected as Miles was. Some members were carrying on cosmic conversations about the meaning of life, and others were dissolving little white tabs on their tongue, tabs of what they like to call pure concentrated creativity. A stagehand walked up to Miles. He looked tired and in a hurry. Hey, my boss wanted me to give this to you. He handed Miles an envelope and started to walk away when, all of a sudden, he turned back around. Oh, uh, by the way, uh, what song are you planning on playing first? Miles looked up. He was confused. Song? Shit. Call it anything. I don't care. We ain't even playing any songs tonight anyway. Now, the stagehand was confused. Bewildered and at a loss for words, he walked away. This time without turning back around. And yes, that night's first song was announced as titled, Anything. Miles looked back down at the envelope and started to open it. Inside was a check. When he saw the amount and his name, his heart pounded even louder and harder. He looked over both of his shoulders like a little kid with his hand in the cookie jar. (laughs) I feel like a thief, Miles mumbled but his bandmate heard him. Don't worry, every band member in his band was also about to get paid too, and also about to get rich. Pretty much every single one of his band members went on to start their own successful solo careers, just like many of his previous bandmates. This band was just getting started with Miles. It took them a few years to really find their groove with Miles, for every member to get on the same wavelength. But when they finally did, it was truly magical. So, since we're on the topic of his band, I want to spend a few minutes talking about them. Because Miles' band is a huge part of what makes this album. Behind every masterpiece, there's always a genius. But in the case of Bitches Brew, there happens to be about 12 of them. If Miles had a superpower, it was being able to find the best people, build the best team, and just let them do what they do best. So who were they? Well, this is a clip from a podcast called The Opus. It's a fantastic podcast, and each season does a deep dive into some of the most legendary albums ever made. So check it out. They did a whole season on Bitches Brew. Well,
1: I'll just, I'll just give you a quick rundown. Okay. Whew. You got Joe Zawinul on the left Electric Piano. He started out with Cannonball Adderley, He's one of the guys that invented Jazz Fusion, and was voted Best Electric Keyboardist 28 times by the readers of Downbeat Magazine. And on the right electric piano, you got Chick Corea. He's written several songs that are considered to be standards in jazz. He went on to start the legendary fusion group, Return to Forever, and is considered to be one of the greatest electric keyboardists in the history of jazz. And then you got Larry Young, who is the third electric pianist. Yes, that's three electric pianos, who's another groundbreaker in jazz fusion and recorded a very famous jam session with a guy we like to call Jimi Hendrix before Miles came along and scooped them up for Bitches Brew. John McLaughlin is on electric guitar. He's widely considered to be the greatest guitar player in the world at the time, and has been described by Jeff Beck and Pat Metheny, both pretty goddamn good guitar players themselves, as the greatest guitarist alive. Dave Holland was only 22 at the time. He's on double bass. Miles heard him opening up for Bill Evans and told him he wanted him in his band. Gave him three days to get from the UK to New York for a gig with Miles at Count Basses Club in 1968. And then you got Harvey Brooks, who's on electric bass. He started out playing with a guy named Robert Zimmerman, who all y'all may know is Bob Dylan. Then he went to play for a band called The Doors before he got poached by Miles. Benny Moppin is on bass clarinet. He was in several different amazing bands with Herbie Hancock, including the legendary Headhunters band, and then went on to play with Meat Beat Manifesto later in life. That one blew my mind. And then there's Wayne Shorter on Soprano Sex. I could go on at length about Wayne Shorter, but I was just going to leave you with this fact. Wayne Shorter has won 11 Grammys. 11 goddamn Grammys. We haven't even got to the drums yet. You still with me? Good. Because we got Lenny White on the left drum set. He was only 19 when Miles recruited him. He was self-taught, and shortly after he was old enough to buy cigarettes, he was in Miles' band, playing alongside Jack D. Jeannette, who was on the right drum set, who's one of the most influential jazz drummers of the 20th century. He's played with Bill Evans, Sunrock, Keith Jarrett, John Coltrane, everybody. That is the core band. Three pianos, two basses, two drummers, one soprano sax, one bass clarinet, and Miles Dam Davis on the trumpet. That is a band. And we haven't even gotten to Bill Cobham or Erto Morira, who sat on percussion in the last song, Feo. Warmark Mark Gould's homies Don Elias and Juma Santos, who played congas and Percussion on Miles Runs the Voodoo Down. For jazz fans, that is an impressive list. In short, a few of them were stars coming into this session, but a lot of those guys weren't big names at the time. But they all became big names after, because Miles saw greatness in them, even when others hadn't.
0: After Bitches Brew, all the bandmates became closer, on and off the stage. Miles would invite them to dinner once in a while as a time to just come together as one family unit. This particular time, Miles invited them all to an Indian restaurant. Some might say the decor was over the top, but it was working perfectly for Miles' master plan. He was watching all of his band members' reactions very closely. Some of them were downright mystified, but they were all at least entertained. There were turbans on display on the walls, like elk antlers in a hunter's home. Chandeliers hung low. Each of them was a different glistening color. And the walls, the walls were covered in a pattern that resembled something straight out of an ancient Hindu temple. The banisters continued this pattern, only it was more ornate and detailed. The whole place was emanating in a reddish hue, and there was an intense smell, an exotic smell, a certain spice that invaded the musician's nostrils and waged war on the brain, bringing on an army of hunger. The waitress was writing in her notepad, trying to keep up with each order. After two full pages of orders, she looked at Miles. What can I get you? Just some kind of salad. Her brow furrowed and she brought her ear a a bit closer to hear his raspy mumble. Salad, salad, he said again as loud as his whisper would allow. Her brow twitched again in surprise and she impulsively wrote down one more order for the table. Simply put, salad. Miles had become a bit of a health nut. He was eating healthy, he was boxing again, and honestly, he was looking and feeling great for 46 years old. Two hours later, the musician's bellies were full, except for Miles, who had only eaten a small salad. But that was quite alright, because he wasn't there to eat. Everyone was sitting back, chatting, and Miles was still and quiet, surveying, observing, and listening. That was something Miles did often, and it always worked in his advantage, on the stage and off. He would sometimes even sit at the bar while his band was on stage playing and riffing off one another, and just watch as the song progressed, only to come in after five or ten minutes just to play a few near-perfect notes, then continue to observe again, sprinkling in few supplementary notes every few minutes or so. But back at the restaurant, Miles finally spoke up.
1: I'll take the check.
0: Now, paying for an astronomical amount of food wasn't exactly what was weighing on Miles' mind. But he was waiting for just the right time. And paying for everyone's dinner would help get the whole band's attention. So Miles continued to listen. And just as they were walking out, the band thanked Miles for dinner. And Miles stopped dead in his tracks. The time was right. The conversation stopped, and they all looked at Miles, and Miles looked back at them. Well, what do y'all think? Everyone just looked at each other, all in different states of shock. Think about what? What are you talking about? Wait, what's happening? Those were just some of the thoughts being telepathically exchanged between the band members in that moment. But Miles spoke up again. What did y'all think about the music? The band took a step back into the restaurant and actually started listening to what had just been exotic background noise to everyone but Miles until that moment. This is the way we're gonna do it on the new album. I'm gonna mix the sitar, electric sitar, with the funk. Bitches Brew had set out to break the complacency of jazz, and it had done just that. Bitches Brew was an experience more than entertainment. So with his next albums On the Corner and Big Fun, Miles and his band found the perfect balance of exploration and solid, enjoyable entertainment. The way they blended exotic sounds made it all the better. Miles and his band returned to the stage with a ferociousness. They took their performances and musical exploration to the next level. Each and every night they were on stage, and they pushed their boundaries, exploring percussion, distortion, and so many other sounds. The music they created was definitely what some may call acid music, but in a very unique way. The great Carlos Santana said the following about how it feels to listen to these albums. Quote, people who smoke weed and are high, all of a sudden they're straight. And then the people that are straight, all of a sudden they become high. He totally changed everything just by the way he was playing." Unquote. In other words, this is music that gets you high just by listening to it. And very few musical compositions truly have that kind of power. That said, this is the kind of music you really have to commit yourself to as well. And so with that, I challenge you to commit yourself to it. Do yourself a favor take one hour out of your day and just look up Miles Davis' 1970s live performances on Google or YouTube. Just close your eyes, or watch if it's a video, but immerse yourself, and trust me, you won't regret it. And I'll put a few links to some of my favorites in the show notes as well. So by 1974, things were getting hectic in Miles' life. He wasn't just constantly touring around the world jumping from time zone to time zone, He was doing movie scores and recording other albums with several other musicians week after week. Still, even if the house of his mind was getting cluttered and dirty, it seemed like he had a way of picking up. Deep cleaning the bathrooms and dusting every inch of his mind every single day. He had every day down to a routine. Wake up, spend an hour at the boxing gym, record all day, perform almost every night. He didn't have time for much else. Although, his demeanor on stage said otherwise. He'd started playing with his back to the audience. And when he did show his face, it was dripping and drenched with sweat veins popping out of his neck like he was making some kind of metamorphosis into a werewolf or the Incredible Hulk. When he wasn't wearing blackout glasses, his eyes were wide open, full of concentration as if to take in every millisecond of the moment. His body twitched and convulsed while he blew his perfectly distorted tones into the audience. At first, these signs were just brushed off as genius artistic moves and genuinely seemed like some kind of superhuman level of concentration. Ironically enough, one of the most obvious signs that his healthy lifestyle wasn't exactly so healthy after all was one of the most brushed off and unnoticed. Dilated pupils were all too common if you could even see through his shades, and his pupils were gigantic pretty much all the time, and also a telltale sign that There may have been another part to his daily routine after all. His ferocious focus and amped up passion. Could it really all have been fueled by a daily dose of his good old magic potion? I believe Miles was naturally driven. Miles really was committed to a healthy diet and exercise, but his life was continuing at a pace that his body just couldn't keep up with. And after all, at the end of the day, Miles Davis was an addict. By the time he'd reached Osaka, Japan on his never-ending tour, his body and his mind were riddled with problems. Pneumonia, osteoarthritis, sickle cell anemia, depression, and stomach ulcers. And as a result, he started playing less shows. The few shows he was performing, he relied heavily on prescription pills, alcohol, and coke to maneuver. His carefully crafted schedule started turning into mush. All of his dedicated band members started going their own ways and advancing past Miles. And now, Miles himself was turning into mush. Miles was either in a hospital or on a stage. His former bandmate Herbie Hancock had eclipsed Miles commercially to the point that Miles was now opening for Herbie. By 1974, Miles was completely burnt out and alone. The women he was involved with at the time had all left him, including Betty Davis, who was long gone at that point. She filed for divorce due to his violent temper in 1969 just a year after they'd gotten married. And so, he took a lonely drive to the beach, something that always tamed his wandering mind, but, of course, only after he popped a few pain pills. The summer sun was beating down on the metal roof of his Ford GT. The air conditioning was cranked to the max, but the heat was still creeping into places the vent couldn't reach. Miles was somehow still comfortable, just cruising down the highway leisurely. Suddenly, he had a thought. A fearful thought. A vision, really. One that came from the deep, dark depths of his paranoid brain. He'd been having these thoughts or visions ever since he'd been popping those pain pills. And this vision it was particularly scary. Miles saw himself homeless in an alley, jingling a bucket around for a few coins. He tried diverting his thoughts to the hum of the engine but the fear and anxiety were too powerful. His mind was fighting a war with itself and it became apparent that so was his body. His shirt was damp and his face was dripping with sweat. He tried to turn on the AC, but it was already cranked. He panicked even more and popped another pain pill. After a few minutes, he fell back into a blissful state and just focused on all the sensations he was feeling. The cool air hitting his skin, pressure of the gas pedal underneath his foot, and he pushed it down even further, the warm embrace of the leather bucket seat hugging his body. Miles finally became calm once again, until he had another thought that threw him into a panic. This cycle repeated every 10 minutes or so, and it was an hour-long drive to the beach. All right, thanks again to everyone who's been listening and following along to the journey of Miles Davis. Music Legends is written and produced by me, Willie Miller, and I really hope y'all enjoyed that one. I'm really trying to get deep into the mental health and state of mind of Miles Davis during that time. Also, although Miles was never officially diagnosed with any mental health problems, it's been reported that around this time in his story, Miles was definitely suffering from paranoid delusions and hallucinations. I should also mention that although Miles was known to turn his back to his audience during this time, I genuinely do not believe it was due to any of the drugs he was on. The type of music he was making was so highly based around improvisation, and he really needed to give and take cues from his band. But no one was really doing that at the time. I mean, if you're on stage, you face the audience. End of story. But not Miles Davis. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was pretty punk of him. And yeah, I mean, it also definitely helped continue to build his cool and mysterious public persona. Now, I also happen to believe that there was a period in time, right around the time that he met his second wife, Betty Davis, where Miles was actually clean of drugs, exercising regularly, eating a healthy diet, and generally just taking good care of himself. I think some of that came from sheer infatuation that he had with Betty Davis and her way of life, but he was inspired for sure. Only thing is a person can only truly change when they themselves decide to, you know? So yeah, he slowly got back into drugs. I couldn't really pinpoint an exact time or experience though. Okay, now one other thing I wanted to mention is I know I say Clive Davis at some point during the episode. That is not a typo. His name is Clive Davis. Uh, He just happens to have the exact same last name as Miles Davis. They're not related in any way. They just both happen to have the same last name. Um, Pretty crazy, but yeah, Head of Columbia Records, uh, Clive Davis, and of course, Miles Davis. So yeah, lots of good stuff in the show notes today for those who'd like to dive a little deeper. First things first, I said I'd be putting some of my favorite 70s era Miles Davis live sets. Uh, and one of them is actually from 1969, uh, live in Copenhagen. But highly recommend to check out that entire show if you have the time. Just some absolutely stunning proto free jazz from some incredible musicians. Now, if you don't have time to watch the video, totally understand. So I also put a link to some of my favorite live records from the 70s as well. They should be available on pretty much all streaming platforms, but I just put a YouTube link. One of them is the classic Agarta. And the other is Live Evil, which is actually a combination of live and studio, so not exactly a true live album, but honestly some of the most experimental, funky, and darkest live material I've heard from the Davis catalog. Uh, So yeah, let's see... I did put a great article about the making of Bitches Brew in there, Um, in case you want to check that out, I uh, actually sourced a lot of what I said, about the making of Bitches Brew from it. Um, So yeah, let's see. Uh, Last but not least, I'll go ahead and put a link to the Opus podcast season on Miles Davis. Um, Like I said, great podcast, really goes deep into the making of Bitches Brew. So yeah, that's all I got for the show notes today. If you guys enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with someone you know who loves music. All right, y'all. I think that's enough talking for me today. If I keep it up, my voice is going to start sounding like Miles Davis. All right, everybody. Peace out. I'll see you in two weeks.